Oh, hello. I'm very pleased to be here, as always. And I have written a talk, uh, which I called Open Heart Surgery. The subtitle is Suffering and Healing in Rumi's Masnavi. But while I think of something to say, I'm going to play you a few bars of the Ney, played by not a Turkish Ney player, which you're probably more familiar with, but by an Iranian Ney player on the Iranian Ney, which is played quite differently from the Turkish Ney and sounds different. And this is uh, a short piece played by Hossein Amumi. for playing that is that it it, it uh, illustrates the rhythm of the Masnavi that is the rhythm of the whole of the Masnavi that Rumi composed in, in baits or in verse and uh, I make no bones about the fact that I've translated it into verse, I've translated it into meter at least, I've translated it into a different meter but that's the, the rhythm of the Masnavi it's a very haunting rhythm and uh, a very um, hypnotic rhythm if you like now this the subject I really want to talk about is uh, love in the Masnavi because Rumi is known especially for students of Ibn Arabi Rumi is known as the pole or the Qutb of love understanding what that means is difficult for us using that English word love simply because as we all know, it tends to have two associations. One is with sentiment and other is, the other is with uh, erotic love. Erotic love, sentimental love, romantic love. And also, of course, but less and less understood in this violent world, Christian love. Now, what Rumi means by love and is something that we discover as we read the Masnavi. The word that he uses is the Persian word, the Arabic word, ishq. Ishq. This is a mysterious word only because it refers, not because it is in itself mysterious, but because we misunderstand it. Because we love form. And the whole of the Masnavi is a lesson in the love of what is beyond form. Now, open heart surgery is not just a clever title. It is a clever title. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
I mean exactly by that that I actually now have come to believe that the Masnavi is what Gurdjieff and Bennett referred to as a legomenon. This occurred to me in the car driving up this morning. I remembered this word that Bennett and Gurdjieff used to use, legomenon. And I, if I remember rightly, and I hadn't thought about this until I was on the road today, as I remember rightly, a legomenon is something which must be said and which must be heard, which must be read. And it has the effect of inducing in the reader a change of heart. It is a teaching in a poem. And that's why I think that the Masnavi is as deliberate as a surgeon's operation on our heart. So it tells you what the Masnavi is. It is open heart surgery. It requires an operation upon ourselves. And Rumi has already donned his surgical garments in the first few lines when he declares, leaning heavily on a medical reference, he says, Shardbash, be happy, rejoice, O love that is our sweetest passion, physician of our many illnesses, relief from our pomposity and boasting, O you who are our Plato and our Galen. And here he mentions the two most famous, the most famous metaphysician and the most famous physicians, the physician of the ancient world, that is Plato and Galen. As Nicholson says of this line about Plato and Galen, he says, Arabian and Persian medicine is permeated by Greek philosophy so that the standard Muslim biographical dictionary of famous Physicians naturally includes, by way of introduction, articles on Pythagoras, Socrates, Plato and other philosophers, as well as on Hippocrates and Galen. Plato's own theory of love makes the mention of him here specially appropriate. And other learned things. But in Rumi's time, as well as in the ancient world, the philosopher and physician worked in a continuum of reality. And doctor was someone learned in both realms. But in this line, he addresses no human being at all, but love itself. He says, O love. And he calls, he calls upon God, calling him Eshk, who cures us of our many illnesses. And Rumi immediately illustrates the workings of the divine physician with the very first story of the Masnavi, of the king and the slave girl which must be familiar to at least some of you. Uh, Some people never get beyond that story, of course, Uh, but it is, that's why I'm going to refer to it. In this story, four words are used of sickness, which show the the range of the term is similarly wide as in English. We have illness, sickness, disease, affliction, and so on. This story focuses on two separate instances of sickness. The first, when the slave girl whom the king has just bought falls sick and frustrates the king's lascivious intentions, and one which seems brutally to resolve the story when the king, the king's physician has the slave girl's former boyfriend poisoned, and he falls sick. Now, the first sickness is immediately diagnosed by the divine physician who comes from heaven as an aching heart. We would call it spiritual heart disease, to follow the metaphor of the, 
the title of my talk, when Rumi says, He saw the pain and opened up the secret, but did not tell the king and kept it hidden. Her pain was not from black or yellow bile. The scent of wood is sent up in its smoke. He saw in her distress her broken heart, her body healthy, but her heart in chains. The sign of being in love is an, an aching heart. There is no suffering like the suffering heart. The pain was opened up just as a secret is revealed. It is not caused by a bodily malfunction, but rather by the sickness of the heart. The moment he says this line, Rumi is carried away on a discourse of ecstatic flight which is unparalleled in the rest of the Masnavi, as he contemplates the unimaginable power of love suggested by his mentioning of one word, and that is the word shams, the word sun. He's moved effort, effortlessly from the love-struck palpitations of an adolescent serving girl to contemplate the glories of divine love, which had been shown to him in ecstasies, which he cannot bring himself to reveal here to his listeners, although he struggles to do so. And all because love is one and a great continuous reality going from the mundane to the ultimate level of reality. And this is why Rumi says, The lover's suffering is like no other suffering. Love is the astrolabe of God's own mysteries. No matter whether love is of this world or of the next, it steals us to that world. Though language gives a clear account of love, yet love beyond all language is the clearer. The pen had gone at breakneck speed in writing, but when it came to love, it split in two. Now, in Persian, it is very beautiful, these lines, and this is why I would like to play you something rather extraordinary which is uh, these lines sung in Persian by Hussein Omumi and one of the most famous, beautiful Persian female voices, Parisa. هر چه گویم هر چه گویم
چون قلم در نشکن میشه تا چون چون قلم بر خود چون سخن در وصف این خالت هم قلم بشکست و هم کاغذ دارین هم قلم بشکست و هم کاغذ Now, I want to look at this word love. The word that the, the, the line goes like, I'll, I won't sing it for you, but it says, it says, Aashiqi garzin garozal garzan sarast, aqibat mara bedan sar rahbarast. Harche guyam eshkro sharho bayan, chun be eshkoyam khajal basham azan. Garche tafsir zaban roshangarast, the word that he uses for love when he says no matter whether love is of this world or of the next is the word ashari which is different from the word ishq now ishq is al-ishq means passionate love the love of the the love of the the perfect lover for god and the love of god for the perfect lover and the word he uses here is not ishq, but ashiq. And it is as different, uh, I can explain it as meaning rather on the analogy of mother and motherhood. So we have the lover and loverhood. So ashiq means the, is the abstract of the agent noun. The agent noun ashiq, the lover, but ashiq means loverhoodnessism. <laughs> in other words it's the state of being a lover in other words it's not a philosophical abstract but it is being a lover and it is that which he when he says no matter whether love is of this world or of the next it takes us to that world to that world and he mentions the astrolabe he says love is the astrolabe of God's own mystery the astrolabe is a measure and a ma- microcosm of the whole universe by which the astronomer, medieval astronomer, could understand its workings. And so Rumi does not blame the slave girl for feeling heart sickness. He is acknowledging that love has this power over us to make us suffer, whether it is a tender infatuation or a profound mystical yearning. Osheki, being a lover, is the human condition. It is the state of attraction. It is the state of needing, yearning, desire for something. And we are torn apart by this desire. This is the very starting point of the Masnavi, which begins with the familiar lines, Beshnui ne chun shekoyad mikonad, as judai hao shekoyad mikonad, and 
در نفیرم مرد و زن نالیده اند سین خواهم شرح شرح از فراق تا بگویم شرح درد اشتیاق Listen to the read as it is grieving It tells the story of our separations Since I was severed from the bed of reeds In my cry men and women have lamented I need the breast that's torn to shreds by parting to give expression to the pain of heartache. So the heartache and being torn apart is meant at the highest level of mystical understanding. And that too is part of the human condition. The Masnami teaches that God is primarily known through love and God is approached as the Divine Beloved and his principal theme and his method of working on The transformation of the heart is announced in this first line which commands the listener to listen to the cause, to the story of separations. And it's in understanding what causes separations and why we feel torn apart by desire, longing, suffering, what suffering does to us, that we understand its resolution. So separation is the human predicament. Suffering is the human predicament. Love is both the cause, if you like to think of, of it in the, in the lowest sense, it's this attraction, this desire, this yearning, this outgoing is the cause of this predicament of separation and also its solution. Human love forms an attachment to the object of love which inevitably, inevitably results in the experience of separation from it. Then, if this transitory love is lost, occasioned by a failing heart or a failing of health, the question is, can love be given and felt any more? The cure is divine love, the love which is beyond form, which is not to be found in other transitory things, not even in the image of the transcendent beloved itself. For to do so would be to return to things which can be lost and forgotten even if they are sublime things. So right from the beginning in the first story of the king and the slave girl, Rumi leads the reader into the, com the complexities, the complexities of human love and separation and discloses the action of divine love when it is earnestly sought and asked for. And that is the key, perhaps the first key of the Masnavi is that revelation comes when it is earnestly asked for and the king is reduced to despairing of his court physicians who are useless just fawning uh, creeps just uh, trying to please their king they'll say anything they think will please him and he's reduced to a state of weeping on his prayer mat and imploring God for help. Now, as the Masnavi progresses, the couplets, each couplet conveys a nocte, a point of intelligence that penetrates and lightens the sense of separation that is inevitably in each line, that is inevitably felt by the soul, which is dominated by the nafs, the egoistical, the illusory condition of self-regard, The goal of Sufi teaching, 
is to die to self-regard and to live in the consciousness of the divine. The reed, of course, becomes the symbol from the beginning of this paradoxical love as it complains bitterly of having been torn from its reed bed and whose cries have always moved men and women to tears, but which is also soothing to us as it reminds us of love's consolations. Uh, uh, Hussein Mumi said to me in a cafe in Paris when we were rehearsing for this thing we did once together, he said, I don't understand, but Persian music is so sad, so melancholy. And we, we thought about this. Why is it so melancholy? The reed is friend to all who are lovelorn. Its melodies have torn our veils apart. Whoever saw a poison and a cure like the reed, a mate and longing lover like the reed. The operation of the mystical heart surgeon, then, is different from that of the cardiologist of the medical operating theatre, for Rumi's spiritual physician uncovers the veils that obscure the heart. Rumi's not working to unblock ventricles and clogged arteries, but rather to restore the sight of the heart. We probably prefer to say insight in our modern jargon, but Persian has the expression Chashmedel, the eye of the heart. I'm sure there's, there's the same ex- equivalent in, in Arabic. Ayn al-Basir, isn't it? The, the eye of the heart, the eye of sight. The sight of the heart. Now, in, a, in, in another story, when... Do you remember the story of the Byzantine emperor's ambas- ambassador who, who could not see the caliph's palace? And he was told by the local yokels, he was told, Oh, brother, how will you perceive his palace when hair has overgrown your inner eye? Your heart's eye must be cleansed of hair and error. Then go and have a look and see his palace. What causes the blindness of the heart's eye, then, is variously described by Rumi. In one passage, for example, Solomon is said to have achieved perfect vision by emptying his heart of all that cluttered it, namely the kingdom of this world. Since Solomon had cleansed his heart of wealth and power, he only called himself the poor. A stoppered jar in troubled waters even can float on water with its air-filled heart. So when the air of poverty is within us, there's peace upon the waters of the world. Although this whole world is his sovereign kingdom, this kingdom is as nothing to his heart's eye. In the simplest of terms, Rumi diagnoses the defect within us as selfishness. How can a mirror be without reflection, he says. He asks you at the very beginning of the Masnavi. Do you know why your mirror tells of nothing, the rust has not been taken from its surface. In one of his favourite images, rust is ugly on a mirror as selfishness defaces the heart. Mirrors, remember, were made of polished metal, not of glass. He says, or for their rust-encrusted blackened hearts. In a beautiful lyrical passage in the latter part of the first book, Rumi returns to a definitive expression of this theme. Don't bear that weight of knowledge from ambition, 
make sure you see the fruits of inner knowledge and ride upon the vehicle of wisdom and then the burden tumbles from your shoulders. Without his cup, will you be free from cravings? O you who are content with just his name, what comes of qualities and names? Illusion. Yet that illusion signifies the union. Have you seen signs without a signifier? When there's no road, there is no ghost to haunt it. And have you seen a name without its essence? From R-O-S-E have you picked a rose? You've named it. Now go find the thing you've named. The moon is in the sky, not in the river. If you would pass beyond the name and letter, then cleanse yourself of self once and for all. Be rust-free like the sheen of polished iron. Be rust-free in your practice like a mirror and cleanse yourself of qualities of self so that you see your pure and holy essence. You'll see within your heart the prophet's science, without a book or tutor or a master. There are countless images of this wounded heart in Rumi's writings. Perhaps the simplest is like a thorn in the flesh. As when a thorn has stuck in someone's foot, he takes his foot and puts it on his knee and with a needle's point seeks out its tip and if he does not find it, licks the point that thorn is so elusive in the foot, tell me how much more hidden in the heart. If any fool could see the thorns in hearts, then when indeed would sorrows overwhelm us? Or he describes it as blindness caused by wickedness. Desire and anger make men go cross-eyed, for they distort the spirit from uprightness. When craving comes, then virtue is concealed, a hundred veils divide the heart and sight. The term heart is used in many different ways, in many different strengths of use, um, sometimes in a weak sense, as in English, in my heart, meaning the genuine person. Sometimes it's used in a stronger sense, as the central organ of your spiritual nature, which must be opened and purified. Once strengthened and purified, one becomes sahibedel, the possessor of the heart. It's a difficult term to describe. It's a very important term in this tradition. The sahibedel is the one who is master or owner of their heart. I, I've translated it as heart-strong. Heart-strong, as distinguished from head-strong. So someone is heart-strong, is the possessor of their heart, and is not ruled by their head. Here, in a purple passage, Rumi opens with the image of a laughing pomegranate. The wise have all agreed on this exactly. The wise one is a mercy to all creatures. A pomegranate should be bought when laughing, so that its laugh will tell you of its seeds. How lucky is its laugh, for from its mouth its heart is shown like pearls in soulful caskets. But inauspicious was the tulip's laughter, whose mouth displayed the blackness of its heart. The pomegranate's laugh delights the garden, and human company will make you human. You may be stone or you may be of marble, but when you meet the heart-strong, 
you're a jewel. Implant the pure one's love, implant the pure one's love within your soul, and keep your heart for love of the sweet-hearted. Do not go down the hopeless track. There is hope. Do not go to the darkness. There are suns. The heart will lead you to the heart-strong way, the body to the jail of earth and water. Go on and feed your heart from friendly hearts. Go find your fortune with the fortunate. Del, or heart, is also used in its strongest sense as virtually coterminous with God himself. Not in a philosophical sense, as an abstraction, but as the organ which is directly illuminated by divine light. Rumi explains this very carefully, though it was extremely difficult to translate this very condensed few verses into English, and you'll see why. I'll read it in Persian first, because you'll hear the... the <laughs> the contortions he gets into. In Berun as Aftabo as Sohal, Vandarun as Axe Anvare Olal, Nure Nure Chashmechod Nure Delast, Nure Chashmas Nure Delho, Hoselast, Boz Nure Nure Del Nure Chodost, Kuse Nure Aklo Hes Pako Jodost. This outward light is from the sun and stars. The inward light, the inward light's reflection of sublime light. Your own eye's light's light is the light of hearts. The eye's light is the outcome of the heart's light. Your own heart's light's light is the light of God. It's pure and far from mental, sensual light. But the light of the heart and even the heart itself does not belong to the self, and therefore there must be a sacrifice in order for the heart to return to full strength and capacity. And this is the central conundrum and paradox of the Sufi teaching expressed in the line, how much of lovers' lives is spent in dying. You only win the heart by losing it. For Rumi, the pain of human separation was the teacher of this process of letting go attachment to desire and attachment to sensuality and self-regard. This was a man in his sixties who had lost both parents before he was forty, who had lost his first wife, who had lost his eldest son, who had lost several beloved spiritual teaching, including having lost Shamsuddin, not once, but twice. In the story of the king and the slave girl, the king first thought that the slave girl would be a cure for his pain, that her health would be his health. Save my life, he asks his doctors, by saving hers. But his pain had apparently only started when he had felt he was going to lose her through her illness. In other words, his pain woke him up to his state of separation, alarmed him. It caused him to attend 
to something. In other words, she became a cure once she had begun to cause him to suffer. He can only be released from this kind of pain by being released from love of her and discovering that he finds true love in the person of the spiritual physician. He said, and I quote Rumi, he said, in truth you were my love, not she, but in this world one thing becomes another. She is only released, she in turn who falls uh, she falls sick, as you remember. She, she herself falls sick and um, is cured. She's only released from the pain of her own heartache for her lover when she falls out of love with her lover. In sickness now, his beauty was no more. The girl's soul would not see him through his sufferings. As he turned ugly, grim and pale of face, he gradually went cold within her heart. When love is for the sake of a complexion, it is no longer love. It ends in shame. The lover, of course, protests that he has been unfairly treated, but he dies in the end all the same. That slave girl was released from love and pain because the love of dead men does not last, because the dead man does not come to us. And he concludes the story with a celebration of the true love which does not suffer separation. He says, and he's talking directly to his listener here, Eshke on zende gozin, kubariest, kaz sharabijon fazayet sariest. Choose love of that immortal living one, the bearer of rejuvenating wine. Choose love of him from whom the prophets all derived their power and glory from his love. A theme that emerges early on in the Masnavi is that the ability to feel pain is not only a human universal, but also that it is profoundly necessary as a guide to the truth. Sickness can be beneficial in the long run as it wakens us to our mortality. It's sighs and soriness when you are sick. The time of sickness is the time to waken. Just at the time when you are falling sick, you beg forgiveness for your trespasses. The hatefulness of sin is shown to you and you resolve, I'll come back to the path. You promise and you pledge that after this I'll only choose obedience for my deeds. So this becomes a certainty that sickness will bring good sense to you and wakefulness. So know this for a fact, fact-finding one. Whoever is in pain has got the scent. She who is more awake is more in pain. She who is more aware is paler-faced. In the story of the first Jewish king and the Christians, the Christians, you remember, are separated from their teacher, the Jewish vizier who deceives them all, and they also suffer the terrible pain of loss of him. But this time, in their blind folly, when they see their pain as the cure, it is a self-delusion. And this is the point of the story, that you can fool some of the people all of the time. He shut himself away for forty days, then killed himself and fled from his existence. When people were informed about his death, it was the day of judgment round his grave, 
So many people gathered at his grave, all tearing hair and ripping clothes in grief, that God alone can estimate their number of Arabs and of Turks and Greeks and Kurds. They heaped the dust upon their heads for him. They saw their pain for him as their own cure. A month long those poor creatures at his grave were streaming paths of blood from both their eyes. In some of the passages of even this early in the Masnavi, Rumi is delivering a message which is profoundly difficult to understand, namely that sometimes suffering can be good for us. And if your nature's fire should cause you pain, it burns by order of the Lord of Judgment. And if your nature's fire should cause you joy, the Lord of Judgment puts the joy in it. When you are feeling pain, then ask forgiveness. The pain which the Creator wills is useful. He wills, and pain itself is turned to joy. His very manacles will make you free. His very manacles will make you free, says it all. But it is one of those impenetrable gems of Rumi's poetry one can only contemplate and rarely truly see into. Rumi, as one brought up in the law of Iranian tradition, knows that suffering is inevitable in this mixed world of good and evil. I quote him, The hidden treasures which are good and evil strike at the heart with blows at every moment. But he counsels tranquility to transform our understanding of suffering. The wounds of inspirations and temptations come from a thousand sources, not from one. Be still, so that your senses are transformed, that you may see them, and the pain is cured. The purpose of pain is mysterious, for somehow contentment arises from its opposite. Yet God has no opposite. For God created pain and grief for this, that by these opposites contentment comes. So hidden things appear through opposites. God has no opposite. He stays concealed. There are said to be some who are exempted from pain and grief because of their exceptional commitment and spiritual fortitude. And so the martyrs live. They live in joy. Do not dwell on the body like the pagans, since he gave them the everlasting life, the life immune from grief and pain and suffering. But the majority of us, and Rumi includes himself here, are in love with pain, as the merchant lamented the death of his parrot. The stupid man's in love with pain forever. Go read from I do swear and to in affliction. With your face I was free from all the suffering, untainted in your stream by any froth. These groans are mirages of seeing, and the act of severance from my own too true being. It was God's jealousy. There is no way round God. Where is the heart not shattered by his love? It's jealousy, for he is unlike all others, much more than explanation or report. Alas, I wish my tears became an ocean to shower down upon my lovely sweetheart, my parrot, O oh, mo, my most sagacious bird, interpreter of all my thoughts and secrets, whatever comes to me that's just and unjust, she told me from the first so I'd remember. And Rumi comment, uh, comments at this point. A parrot with a voice from revelation began her life before the first existence. This parrot 
And, of course, the parrot is the, the heart or the soul within you that is in j jailed like the caged bird, jailed by its own voice. The voice that we hear is the voice, that the outer voice, that is the reason that we're, we're in prison because we're kept captive by the nafs, the master who keeps the bird in the parrot. It's a slightly complex image, but the, the master, the nafs, keeps the bird in the cage because he likes the sound of the parrot's <coughs> voice. If the parrot shuts up and pretends to die, she's freed from the cage because she's no good anymore and he tosses her out of the cage. And if you remember, the parrot flies up and says, this is the lesson I learned, to, to, to listen to the inner voice, to, to find my own voice. A parrot with a voice from Revelation began her life before the first existence. This parrot is concealed inside yourself. You've seen her image in phenomena. She takes your happiness, yet you are glad. You take her blows as if she gave you justice. O oh, you who burned your soul, all for the body. You burned the soul, and you inflamed the body. I'm burnt, and anyone in need of tinder can set alight their rubbish using me. Since tinder is amenable to fire, take tinder which most quickly sets ablaze. Alas! And oh, alas! And oh, alas! That such a moon as this went into cloud... How can I breathe with such a flaming heart, the lion of absence, wild and shedding blood? It's as if this wisdom dawns on the merchant only as he contemplates his great loss. And Rumi has himself taken over the voice and now it rises to an ecstatic plane. He takes the cup in hand and approaches the poetry of the ineffable, coming closer and closer to the sweetness of silence. And I'm going to read now a fairly extended passage. I, I prefer to let Rumi do the talking this afternoon anyway. Um, so I'm going to read a couple of passages which, which I hope you will see are a kind of legomenon because they lead the mind from this world to the next. I explained in my introduction that whereas academics in the past have looked for a thematic unity to the Masnavi. They've looked for a conventional sort of, or even an esoteric development, a thematic development of teaching, a didactic teaching which can be described in outer discourse. And they've come to blows over it. They've said, it's like this, and it's like that, and some people have even resorted to the ultimate sort of esoteric shenanigans which is called ring composition where um, is, is, uh, uh, which is <laughs> so much better than thematic ex explanations because you can say well actually it's an esoteric structure it uh, folds in on itself like this it's very very esoteric um, and if you just see the key it, oh it's all esoteric but in fact the, the unity of the Masnavi is beyond form if you look for a formal unity in the Masnavi, you will not find it. And my contention, and I'm trying to explain this in sort of simple terms in the introduction, is that the poetry, it's in poetry, and it, is a, it is, starts with story, because stories are like a great hook that hooks, us, hooks our imagination and takes us somewhere with him. Uh, but very quickly, as you are so used to when you read Rumi, you find that he's left the story and out of the building, you know. He's gone somewhere else. And you follow, you follow 
where does he take you? He takes you into analogy, and you get the analogies, and then he takes you into a moral discourse, which you manfully struggle to keep up with, you know, and it goes on and on. And then suddenly, he's gone, he's gone. And where's he? Ah, because this is a vertical takeoff. I tried to explain that he has a, a vertical trajectory, which is you're not expecting at any moment, he just goes, and he's just beamed up. And you can follow him there, which is the lovely thing. It's why we like Rumi, because we go with him. He takes us to that formless, silent world, where at least he doesn't take us to the silent world. He takes us to the point where he is actually, he, he be, you can see he becomes sort of frustrated by his inability to say, and as I've explained in the introduction, each each line then becomes a sort of throwaway. He's kind of crying out in ecstasy, crying out for help. Each line is behind him as he goes on, and each one is burnt as he goes further on. And what happens is he comes to a point of hiatus or silence where he leaves you to finish the Masnavi for him in your life. So here's a little extract. The one whose sober state is wild and drunk the one whose sober state is wild and drunk. What happens when he takes the cup in hand? The drunken lion, who goes beyond all telling, is too much for the confines of the plain. I'm contemplating rhymes. My lover tells me, you only contemplate your vision of me. Relax, dear rhyming couplet contemplator, for in my couplet you are rhymed with triumph. What's in a word that you should contemplate? What's in a word? The thorns around the vineyard. I throw the words and strains and speech together so that without them I can sigh with you. That sigh which I did keep concealed from Adam I'll say to you, O mystery of the world. That sigh I never breathed with Abraham that sadness Gabriel has never known, that sigh which the Messiah never breathed, God never mentioned in his zeal without us. What's we in words? The yes and no? I am not affirming, I am essenceless negation. I found identity in the impersonal state. I wove it into the impersonal state. All kings become the servants of their servants and all become deceased in their own deed. All kings are humbled by their humble servants, and all are drunk on those who swoon for them. The catcher of the birds becomes their prey, and suddenly he'll make them prey to him. With all their souls the amorous seek the lovelorn, and all beloveds are the lover's prey. The one you saw as lover is beloved. He's both of these in terms of the relation, the thirsty may seek water in the world, and in the world the water seeks the thirsty. So since he is the lover, you be silent. Be ear, since he is tugging at your ear. Restrain the torrent when it starts to flood, or it will cause disgrace and desolation. Why should I care if there be desolation, for underneath, underneath there lies a princely treasure? The one who drowns in God desires more drowning, his soul tossed up and down like ocean waves. It's better under or above the sea. 
his shafts more captivating, or his shield? You will be split apart by whisperings, dear heart, if you distinguish joys and trials. Though your desire is for the taste of sugar, the lover's true desires desirelessness. His stars atone a hundred crescent moons. He is allowed to shed the world's life blood, and we obtained our price and the atonement, and quick we were to play our souls away. How much of lovers' lives is spent in dying? You only win the heart by losing it. With a hundred loving looks, I sought his heart. He wearily excused himself from me. I said, "My mind and soul are drowned in you." He said, "Be off! Don't chant such spells at me." Do I not know what you have contemplated? Ah, how could your two eyes behold the friend? O、oh, leaden soul, how you look down on him because you bought him at so cheap a price! Whoever buys for nothing sells for nothing. A child will sell a jewel to buy a loaf. For I am drowned in love, which does contain the loves of former times and future times. I spoke in brief, uh, brief. I gave no full account, lest it consume your tongue. And understanding, when I say lip, I mean the ocean's shore. When I say no, the intention is except. I'm sitting down, and grimacing from sweetness. I'm silent from a surfeit of my speech, so that our sweetness may be kept disguised from both worlds in the veil of grimacing. This discourse does not fall on every ear. I tell one. In a hundred heavenly secrets, and so Rumi is bringing to a close one of his most celebrated stories, *The Merchant and the Parrot*, with a sublime discourse on the love of God and why it appears both awesome and terrible in its jealousy, at the same time as being the cure and resolution of all our separation. The love of God is the manifest form, which is only apparent to the human heart, and never. To the nafs, Rumi takes great pains, literally, to intimate to his listeners the nature of this divine love, which is like no other form of love, yet from which all loves are ultimately derived. We have to remember, of course, the, that the whole conception of this takes place in a frame dominated by the image, if you like, or the the, the hadith or the context, the story of. The divine unity, loving, in order to be known, and we are caught halfway in this circle of revelation on the way back to the beloved. So the jealousy of God, the love of God for us, is the attraction which draws us back to Him. The jealousy of God would be like wheat, and human jealousy like straws in haystacks. The root of all our jealousies is come from God, who is beyond comparison. I leave this explanation to bewail the cruelty of that ten-hearted sweetheart, and I lament. Laments are sweet to Him. He needs laments and sadness from both worlds. I must lament His fraud with bitterness, since I'm not in the circle of His revelers. Why should I not be night without his day? 
without the union of his day-igniting face. His nastiness is sweet within my soul, soul victim to the friend who tortures me. I am in love with both my grief and pain, all for the pleasing of my matchless king. I make an eye-balm from the earth of sorrow. Both oceans of my eyes are filled with pearls. The tears which people shed on his behalf are pearls, yet the people think them tears. I am lamenting for the soul of souls. I don't complain, I tell it as it is. My heart says how I am tormented by him. I've ridiculed its low hypocrisy. Be just, O glory of the righteous ones, O you who are the throne, and I your shoe-rack. Shoe-rack and throne, what do they mean in spirit? Both we and I are where our lover is. O you whose soul is freed from we and I, O spiritual grace in women and in men, when lovers become one, you are that one. When difference is effaced, then there you are. You made this I and we with this intent that you, that you should play the game of Nard with you. Impossible to translate that. What it means is that um, this is a game of divine backgammon. God is playing backgammon with himself, Nard. You made this I and we that you should play the game of Nard with you. That all the I's and you's become one soul and finally absorbed in the beloved. All this exists and come, O word of being, you who transcend this come and all such words. Flesh sees you only in the fleshly form, imagining your sorrow and your laughing. With heart tied down to sorrow and to laughing, do not protest that it deserves to see him. He who is tied down to sorrow and to laughing, he lives on these two things which have been borrowed. In love's fresh garden, which is infinite, are many fruits apart from joy and grief. To love is higher than these two conditions, and green and tender without spring or autumn. So pay your lovely faces tax, my beauty, and tell the tale of how my soul is torn. The charms of glances of seductive eyes have lately stamped a brand upon my heart, and I did sanction him to shed my blood. I kept on saying sanctioned, and he'd flee. You flee the cries of scrabblers in the dust. Why heap more sorrows on the hearts of grievers? Each dawn which shone its rays up from the east found you erupting like the solar fountain. Why did you spurn this madly lovesick one? O oh, you, whose lips of sugar have no price. O oh, you, the new soul for the ancient world. Now hear the soulless, heartless body's cry. Leave off your talk of roses, for God's sake. Tell how the nightingale was parted from it. Our fervour does not come from grief, 
and joy, nor is our mind in fancies and conjectures. There is another state which is most rare. Do not deny this. God is full of power. Do not compare this with the human state. Do not set up house in wickedness and virtue. For wickedness and virtue, pain and joy are things which pass away and God inherits. It's dawn, O dawn and refuge of the dawn. Ask pardon of Husamadin, my lord, excuser of the universal mind and soul, your soul of souls and coral's brilliance. The light of morning shone, and in your light our morning draught of your halaj's wine. And as your gift takes hold of me like this, what other wine could bring me such delight? And wine fermenting craves our fermentations, and heaven's turning craves our understanding. The wine got drunk on us, not we on it. The body came from us, not we from it. We're like the bee, the body's like the hive, each body's cells constructed like the hive. The first the line that I quoted, more or less, um, is probably the one I'd like to finish on, which is when he says, whatever words I say to explain this love, when I arrive at love, I am ashamed. So this is why it's not a particularly suitable task for an academic to discourse on, because when, when I come to love, I am ashamed. Thank you.